Thank you. Um, so our next speaker is Joelle McGuire. Um, Joelle has a master's in economics and data science from the University of Oklahoma, graduating top of his class. In his previous social science research, he studied goal achievement using novel data sets, structurally modeled migration within the US labor market, and matched the geography of prospective language across the US. For the last two years, Joelle has been working at the Happier Lives Institute. Um, please, when we get to the Q&A section, which should be about 10 minutes at the end of this talk, um, please post any questions you have in the Swap Card app. Um, you can click on Agenda, then click on Live Discussion, and then you can post questions in the Questions tab. Um, and then I'll ask your questions to Joel up here um, so that you can all hear that. Uh, okay, please give a warm welcome to Joel McGuire. Thank you. So today I'm going to be talking about how to use subjective well-being to compare the cost effectiveness of two interventions, cash transfers and psychotherapy. So first, to cut to the chase, we estimate that both in the, looking at the general evidence base and when comparing two charities, Strong Minds, which delivers psychotherapy, and Give Directly, which delivers cash transfers, that in both of these cases, psychotherapy is nine times more cost effective than cash transfers. So a bit of outline on how this talk is going to go is first I'm going to give a little bit more background on what subjective well-being is, why we think it's promising as a measure of well-being, just why we're doing this at all, and then I'm going to dig into the details of how we actually do this cost-effectiveness comparison between two interventions using subjective well-being. And last, I'll compare these interventions and uh, talk a little bit about the implications for uh, this comparison and for this method of analysis, and end with a bit of a discussion about what's next with HLI. So the background is that at the Happier Lives Institute, HLI, our mission is to find the best ways to increase global well-being. I think this is a pretty EA-aligned uh, aspiration. And our unique contribution is to attempt to uh, try and measure well-being better. And we think that a promising candidate for a better measure of well-being than the current alternatives is using subjective well-being. And so an important thing when we're considering a different outcome measure for our interventions and to use in cost-effectiveness analysis is, does it make a difference? Because if it doesn't make a difference, then it, you know, it, it doesn't matter. And we have this kind of uh, uh, convenient convergence between different outcome measures. And so to, to test if priorities change, we started looking at global health and development interventions because these are well-evidenced and at small scale. So our, our small research team at the time could, could tackle it and use it as a test case for using subjective well-being more general. And this means replicating GiveWell's analysis and the interventions they look at, but using subjective well-being as an outcome measure instead of income and years of life saved. And so like GiveWell, we use cash transfers as a benchmark of comparison. And again, I think uh, an important thing here motivating this analysis is if our priorities change, which um, we think they will, 
then we need to figure out uh, what's best as a method of finding out the best ways to do good, uh, something more like GiveWell's approach or something more like HLI's approach. And so why did we think of psychotherapy as a potentially cost-effective opportunity to compare to cash transfers? Uh, this derives from uh, since that mental health is incredibly neglected globally, and particularly in low-income countries, NGOs and governments spend less than 1% of their budget allocated to health on mental health. And so if you think that mental health has a larger burden than 1%, uh, then you know, we, should, we should probably be spending more on that. And as an additional piece of evidence that motivates us looking towards um, addressing mental health issues, is that mental health's burden on well-being appears to be quite a bit larger in terms of subjective well-being than if we're just looking at it using DALIs. So why are we using subjective well-being at all? Well, that's because we care about well-being. And we, well, how do we measure it? Well, we could use income, we could use years of life saved, or uh, DALIs, disability-adjusted life years. Uh, but we think that subjective well-being is, is promising because we can just uh, potentially get at well-being directly by asking people about how they think and feel about their lives and getting them to respond to that, you know, in, in some numerical way that we can do math stuff to. So can we actually measure well-being by asking people how they feel? Uh, I think probably. Um, now, a key question is, well, whether it's just a measure of well-being isn't sufficient, it needs to be better than the alternatives to be what we use to make decisions with. And this I'm, I'm less sure about, um, but I think you know, it's probably the case. If, if you made me guess, I would say that I think subjective well-being is more promising than the current alternatives of income and health metrics. And so I don't have much time to get into the details about how we validate these scales, but I wanted to briefly discuss, before we dive into the analysis, uh, just some of the, I think, the general evidence about like, why subjective well-being data you know, at least seems to, to make sense and not be completely off. And so here is a map of the world where kind of these bluer colors represent more satisfied countries, and these redder colors represent more dissatisfied countries. And what we find is that I don't think the countries that are very satisfied should be very surprising. Uh, most of them are in Northern Europe with uh, very good healthcare systems and welfare states and other things like low inequality and just a lot of things, you know, like the democratic systems seem to just work pretty well. And uh, the subjective well-being scores kind of reflect that. And conversely, you know, you can see that uh, the darkest colors of red are South Sudan and Afghanistan in 2020, and these are countries at war. So it makes sense that you know, countries in a state of civil war are going to be uh, probably the unhappiest or most dissatisfied countries to live in. And there's a, there's a rich, wide literature in subjective well-being that looks at a bunch of just the different correlates, and it finds that just for a lot of good things like health and wealth, and being in nature, that subjective well-being you know, relates to these things. And so there's, there's a wide literature that, that, um, that kind of argues that subjective well-being seems you know, correlated with the things that matter, so it, you know, it's probably capturing uh, 
you know, some amount of the variation in what we think of as well-being. And, you know, again, what I think is the important question that motivates this analysis is, does using subjective well-being lead to different priorities and new opportunities? So getting into cash transfers. What are cash transfers? They're direct payments made, typically made to people living in poverty. I mean, they can be sent anywhere to anyone. And a good thing about cash transfers is they have a large evidence base. They've been extensively studied and implemented, and they offer a very scalable way to reach people who are likely suffering from extreme uh, financial hardship. So what's the data that we use? Um, my colleagues and I uh, from, from Oxford did a meta-analysis that was published in Nature Human Behavior, and so that's where we draw our data for the effectiveness from. This was 45 studies with over 100,000 individuals collectively. We found this using a systematic search, so for the time period it covers, we think it's exhaustive. And so there's two types of cash transfers that we pay attention to and that we discern between. One is cash transfers paid all at once in a lump sum, and cash transfers paid in a stream of payments, uh, typically every month or every other month. And so the outcomes of interest are, as you may suspect, subjective well-being, but then also we're interested in effective mental health, and we use this as a proxy for subjective well-being as well. And specifically, we look at, uh, when I say effective mental health, what I mean is the class of uh, mental health disorders that are related to a lower level of mood or affect. And these are like depression, anxiety. <clears throat> and the key variables that we look at, um, the key characteristics of the studies are the size of the cash transfer, and how long it's been since the cash transfer was received. And these are important because we think they'll explain a lot of the variation in the effectiveness across cash transfers. So to go through our basic analytic method is what we do is we first standardize the effect sizes into standard deviation changes, and this allows us to compare across outcome measures. So even if there's you know, very different scales or just um, like types of measures, um, Ideally, this allows us to put them all into the same units. And so the first thing we do is we estimate the post-intervention effect, so right after the intervention ends. And then the next thing we want to know is what changes in the effect over time. And most of the time, we assume that the effect will decay. Um, but it's possible that for an intervention, you know, the effect could stay constant or even grow. And we then use study-level regressions to estimate both of these parameters. And if we estimate these parameters, then what we can do from that is calculate what we're really interested in is the total benefit. Because what we don't, what we, what we don't just care about is the instantaneous effect at one point in time. What we care about for most interventions, regardless of the outcome measure we're using, is the total effect over time. And so to do that, we need to have this decay rate. And we also get confidence intervals using Monte Carlo simulations, but I don't have time to explain exactly how we do that, but it does allow us to add uncertainty to our cost-effectiveness analysis. Um, so to present, uh, I think, just some evidence in support of why our data makes sense is that when we just have these bivariate plots of all the effect sizes we collect in our data, and larger dots here reflect uh, larger studies with larger sample sizes, what we find is that the effects decay through time, and for larger cash transfers, the effect is larger. So I think both of those things are pretty intuitive, and 
Just this is, this is what we find in a very graphical way. And so our regression analysis have slightly different slopes than the ones presented here, but they find something similar. And so when we crunch the numbers and find the total effects, uh, something interesting comes up. We find that lump sum cash transfers are much more effective than monthly cash transfers. And this is kind of strange, given that in our model we stipulate that it's $1,000 being sent to each person in each case. So the effect of sending $1,000 just all at once in a lump sum is quite a bit more than sending $1,000 over the course of months. And so why is this? Because I think we intuitively thought beforehand that you send different people the same amount of money and it'll have about the same effect. So one reason why we think that lump sum cash transfers could be more important is they can be more profitably invested. If you have $1,000 all at once, you can buy a new roof where it would be hard to like, save up for a new roof if you just had to cobble together your monthly cash transfers. Um, now, the most plausible theory is, I think, leakage. So the amount of money that we record as the value of the cash transfer is, in almost all cases, what was intended for the recipient to receive. So in almost all studies, we don't actually track how much the recipient receives. And because most monthly cash transfers are provided by governments, there may be an issue of corruption where less money reaches them that way. Um, but also, many government cash transfers require that a recipient go in person to a collection point to get the money. And people in extreme poverty, are they have a lot going on, so it seems plausible that just sometimes they don't quite make it to the collection point. Another potential issue is that most of our evidence about the value and effectiveness of lump sum cash transfers comes from GiveDirectly. And so GiveDirectly also provides cell phones and bank accounts to recipients who don't have those already. And it seems that that could just provide additional value uh, beyond, uh, beyond like the, the financial value that we take out of it. And so we've talked about the effectiveness side. So to look at the cost information, uh, in general for cash transfers, we took cost data from 29 cash transfers. Uh, these were mostly non-overlapping. And so we kind of made an assumption that this would reflect the cost structure of cash transfers in general. And so we find that it, on average, it takes about $1.27 to send a dollar. So the dollar here is included. And when we look at GiveDirectly, it seems it's a little bit cheaper than the average cash transfer, where it costs about $1.18 to send a dollar. And so here is... Uh, the cost it takes GiveDirectly to send a $1,000 lump sum cash transfer over time. And you can see that you know, since about 2014, it's been fairly constant. And I think that just reflects that they have, uh, I think, their operational game down. And so to summarize what we know about the cost effectiveness of cash transfers so far is that it seems that lump sum cash transfers are more cost effective than monthly cash transfers. We're not completely sure why this is. And in this table, I don't completely expect you to understand what like, these units mean, um, because they mostly make sense when we're comparing across interventions. So you don't need to you know, memorize this. So some limitations of our cash transfer analysis is that we haven't extensively reviewed the mechanisms for how cash transfers improve subjective well-being. 
So we assume it's through an income effect, but there can be multiple different types of income effects. So there can be an absolute income effect where you're just like, you're, you're made better off just because your absolute level of income is increased. But part of what's driving the effect may be that your relative position to, relative to some comparison group, your neighbors, your peers in some sense, has improved. And that's what's driving the effect. Uh, but we don't, we don't know what's what. And another issue, and this is going to be the case with almost all interventions that are trying to look at the causal effect of an intervention, is that we don't have the long-term effects, and there's just very few long-term follow-ups. So getting on to psychotherapy. There are many different types of psychotherapy, um, such as cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy, but our analysis doesn't focus on a particular type of psychotherapy because previous meta-analyses have found mixed evidence that one type of psychotherapy is consistently superior to another type. And so instead, what we focus on is how the psychotherapy is delivered. And in our case, what we want uh, to focus on is psychotherapy that's either delivered by non-experts or to groups of people, because we think this will be substantially cheaper and it won't dramatically reduce the effectiveness. We don't have good evidence on how the effectiveness changes when we go from an expert to a non-expert, but uh, the broader evidence suggests that if we're going from a one-to-one -one delivered psychotherapy to a group, that the effectiveness doesn't change, and in some cases, it may actually improve. So the data we use is 39 studies with a total of 30,000 participants. This is less than 100,000 uh, we used for the cash transfers meta-analysis. Another thing to note is that these studies aren't exhaustive. This was not, uh, we didn't arrive at these studies doing a systematic meta-analysis. This is something we would like to do in the future with more time and capacity. Uh, another thing to flag with the meta-analysis of psychotherapy is that we only found outcome measures in terms of effective mental health, so depression, anxiety, and psychological distress. And so um, underlying uh, this comparison is basically uh, assuming like a one-to-one -one conversion rate between a change in effective mental health scores and subjective well-being scores. And so it's possible that our comparison would change if uh, this conversion rate changed. And this is a, still, a, I think, an area of quite a bit of uncertainty for us about how to address this methodologically. And so here, uh, in this figure, we show uh, most of what you need to know to know what we did with the analysis, where each point is an effect we extracted from a study. And when you see an effect tied by a line, that represents a study with multiple follow-up points. And that black bold line represents the, what our model predicts as the effect over time. And so the total effect of psychotherapy will thus be the area underneath that black line, which turns out to be 1.6 standard deviation years, which, again, I admit, may not make sense alone. So we also estimate the cost-effectiveness of strong minds, and I singled this out because I think there's probably more familiarity with Give Directly as an organization. So strong minds, uh, we came to it as a result of quite a bit of scoping, looking for mental health organizations in low and middle income countries that would be willing to 
collaborate and do a cost effectiveness analysis. But they ended up being the only one who were willing to collaborate. Um, I think that may be different if we tried again, because we were a young organization when we did this. And so I'm optimistic that if we tried to do this search again, we would find more potential partners and more organizations out there that would collaborate in doing a cost effectiveness analysis, and that would allow us to potentially make more recommendations in the mental health space. Uh, so a bit about their work is they work in East Africa, and they deliver psychotherapy to groups of women uh, using several different means. And my impression of them as an organization is they're constantly trying to experiment and find ways to decrease the cost of delivering psychotherapy to a person uh, with, while maintaining uh, the fidelity and the effectiveness of the intervention. So how we estimate the effectiveness of Strong Mind as a particular charity is we take this broader evidence and then we combine it with you know, the direct evidence using uh, well, subjective weights. And so for the direct evidence, there's five studies that find a, a, quite, a, quite a high effect. Um, and I, I mean, it is an unusually high effect for Strong Minds in particular. And so what we basically ended up doing was assigning 63% of the weight to the broader evidence. And this has a consequence of pulling the effectiveness of strong minds down. Um, but we still estimate it to be more effective than the average lay, uh, or, lay or group delivered psychotherapy. And the greater total effect is illustrated in this graph, where with the slightly bluer color, um, strong minds is represented, and you can see it has a larger total area and total effect. And that is even though we estimate that it decays faster. So looking at the cost of psychotherapy, we found fewer sources than with cash transfers, only 11 studies that had the cost of delivering psychotherapy. Um, but in summary, we find that in general, psychotherapy, it takes about $360 in terms of complete cost to treat one person, while it takes $130 to uh, treat someone with strong minds. So uh, this analysis so far was just looking at what happens to the recipient. But what we're also interested in is what happens to the household. And this seems to be something that's a bit neglected. So as of now, we've published the analysis that I talked about. Well, what we haven't published is what I'm about to show you. And the story about why we did this is Alexander Berger, as well as Alex Cohen and James Snowden, pointed out that uh, you know, we weren't doing this, and we should. And so we received their criticism and tried to include this analysis. So how could uh, an intervention in general affect its household? So an intervention can make someone happier if it influences their household. It can make them happier if it's, you know, by making them nicer to be around. It can also make them happier by changing how they behave. And there's some evidence that reflects uh, both of these points about there seeming, seeming to be this mere contagion effect, but also that for our interventions in particular, it changes how they behave. So psychotherapy improves how mothers and children relate, and cash transfers have been found to reduce domestic violence. Um, in addition, it seems that uh, interventions can also change how someone contributes economically to their household. And so for cash transfers, I think this is pretty obvious. But for psychotherapy, I'd like to point out there's a, that there's also evidence that receiving treatment for a mental health issue can uh, make someone well, 
better off. So we looked for a lot of data, and we didn't really find any for what happens to the household effect. So we have a sum total of six evidence from six cash transfers and three psychotherapy interventions. So if you recall, this is much, much less than what we have for the direct recipients. And so we calculate the household effects by summing the recipient benefit with the non-recipient benefit. And we calculate the non-recipient benefit by finding this thing called the spillover ratio, and then using that to get the non-recipient benefit, and then we multiply the non-recipient benefit by how many people we expect there to be in the, in the recipient's household. So by the spillover ratio, I just mean the share of the benefit that the non-recipient receives as the share of what the direct recipient receives. And we use this to get the non-recipient household effect. And again, um, we get confidence intervals you know, for these figures. So to summarize uh, what we find with our household spillover analysis is that on the top of this figure is the meta-analytic averages we get for both the recipient on top and the household member on bottom in gray. And so you can see for cash transfers that the effects are similar and that this will correspond to, on the bottom, a much higher spillover ratio. And so the key thing to take away from this slide, this slide is that the spillover ratio for psychotherapy is smaller than it is for cash transfers, and this will lead to a decrease in the favorability of psychotherapy relative to cash transfers compared to when we're doing just the recipient analysis. And another important factor that's just worth mentioning is that strong minds and give directly operate in different countries. And this matters because these different countries didn't have different household sizes, and these different household sizes are important for estimating the total household effect. Um, but for the general interventions, we assume similar household sizes because we don't expect them to take place in different locations just based on the intervention. Um, Another important note is we, we don't find any relationship between household size and spillover effect, but I think this is probably due to our incredibly small sample size. So finally, when we compare, we find um, that the household benefit is actually quite a bit larger than the recipient benefit. So everything else outside of the red rectangle should not be new information. Um, and I think this is really important to note because this household benefit is quite large, but no one's studying this. This is something that is, just seems like a, quite a big gap in the literature, because our evidence so far suggests that there's, there's sizable household like, member effects, um, and again, that implies that we're not measuring most of what happens. And at the bottom, we show what happens from our individual level analysis to the household level analysis. And so the cost effectiveness goes from 12 times to nine times. And we also do robustness checks, but we don't have time to go through those uh, at the moment. And, uh, you know, again, it's worth repeating that we're quite limited by data here with estimating the total household effect, even if we weren't when estimating the recipient level effect. So implications for donors and charity evaluators is that using subjective well-being suggests different priorities and new opportunities. And I think this motivates uh, a somewhat thorny question, 
which is what is the best measure of well-being and what is the best way of doing this analysis to find the best ways to do good. And so for researchers, um, I think an implication of this is that in general, we just need uh, much more data and analysis about how effects change through time, because this is what we need to calculate the total benefit for an individual person. And then also, we need to know what happens not just to the direct recipient of an intervention, but to their household. Because it can potentially make a big difference about the relative cost effectiveness of interventions if there's different levels of household effects. And this was kind of an update for us, is we spent an incredible amount of time. I spent most of the last two years working on this project. And so I collected a lot of studies, did a rigorous meta-analysis of the recipient benefit, and then I kind of belatedly realized that all of it hinges on these very few studies of the household effects. And so it, was, it probably, in retrospect, would have been more um, time efficient if I had collected fewer information on the recipient and started earlier on the household effects. And so I think this is a general, um, this is something generally to pick up for all interventions, regardless of the outcome measure that you use. So what will HLI be doing in the future? So for the rest of this year, I think we're going to be spending our time continuing to do cost-effectiveness analyses of micro-interventions. Um, so things that can be deployed by charities, such as deworming, uh, cataract surgery, mental health apps, cement flooring, or bed nets. Many of these are um, our give well recommended charities, and so we're going to continue that review and see exactly where we um, diverge or how much we diverge or agree. And then we want to, uh, as time goes on, we want to kind of expand our scope to include more complicated interventions that are more ambitious. So we want to look at meso-interventions, such as uh, lead paint regulation or drug liberalization. And we're also wanting to think about like, what are the best well-being policies. And along the way, uh, something that we need to do is engage with, these, with some key theoretical issues and problems, such as where on a subjective well-being scale is a neutral point, is the place where you, know, you go from bad to good. Um, and this is potentially quite important because it seems valuable for us to know how many people are living with negative well-being in the world. Similarly, I think that this work should increase our motivation to do more on the interpersonal and intertemporal inter comparability of subjective well-being scales. So there needs to be a lot more work done to actually see if people use these scales in consistent ways. So if people uh, treat going from a zero to one is the same as a five to a six, is a nine to a 10 on a zero to 10 scale. And if they use like the same endpoints. So like those are important uh, assumptions about treating these scales in the cardinal manner that we need to do to basically take averages of them. But the, these haven't been stress tested or investigated with very simple surveys. And so that is it. So um, yep, uh, thank you very much. Okay, thank you, Joel, again for giving that talk. Um, so I see a lot of you have been putting questions into the app. Um, I'm at risk of adding a weird incentive. I'm going to allow you the thumbs up. If you get more thumbs up, it means you get asked first. So if you like someone else's question, please give it a thumbs up. Um, I'll try to only do one per person. 
because so many people have asked questions. So the first question is, uh, how would you control for countries that have different values that contribute to life satisfaction? For example, countries who have hedonic or eudaimonic, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, happiness equally versus countries who primarily value hedonic happiness. Hmm. So th this doesn't on its face seem like something that we need to control for. Um, unless we have, unless we as HLI has a theory that, like the theory of well-being we should value is the theory that people value for themselves, which I, I don't know is, if, is, is a particularly like, popular theory of well-being. Um, how we try to treat kind of like the, the underlying philosophical stuff that's going on is what we want to do in our analysis, and we still need to get better at this, is clearly explain uh, the different like, if you have one theory of well-being, you know, this is what you'll think of the cost-effectiveness. And that's still something we need to work on. Um, but in the future, what we would like to do is basically say, okay, you know, if you're a hedonist, this is what the cost-effectiveness comparison will look like, because we will then emphasize, uh, presumably, uh, hedonic measures. Or if you care about desire satisfaction, we'll just show you, like, here's what happens when you compare, just using uh, measures that seem most closely related to theories of desire satisfaction. And so on and so forth with uh, as many plausible theories of well-being that we can find uh, good uh, measures that would map onto. Okay, the next question. Um, isn't it a huge, a huge assumption to make that mental health and subjective well-being have a one-to-one -one relationship? For example, someone could consider themselves very mentally healthy but not have enough food to eat. Have you done or looked into any research on the accuracy of that claim? It seems that the thesis psychotherapy is nine times more important than cash transfers rests very heavily on this unsubstantiated and somewhat illogical assumption. <laughs> oh, that got spicy at the end. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, no, it is, it is right, and that's why I flagged it, that our, that our analysis does compare, that does rely on this one-to-one -one comparison. So this is something that is in part going to be hard to get at empirically because there's a couple things going on here. One is an empirical claim about how closely, say, happiness measures and mental health measures are correlated. And if you look at the literature, you find that they're you know, strongly correlated. But what we care about isn't just the correlation. What we care about is kind of the bias or mean differences. So if we had you know, standardized measures, uh, what we'd want to know is, like, do they give similar, like, predictions? Do they respond in similar ways? Because if they respond, um, if they respond in a very similar way, then we can use them as, as proxies. And uh, I, I don't have the slides to present this yet, but we looked at, in addition to doing this, why we're a bit comfortable with this, is we looked at about five meta-analyses that are about psychological interventions, and they had both measures of subjective well-being and mental health. And when we looked at the changes from in response to these psychological interventions, um, the on average, the difference, like the mean difference, was that uh, like mental health measures gave scores that were like five percent less. So in practical terms, if we implemented that, that would mean. Uh, I think a 5% discount on the effectiveness of psychotherapy, which, uh, I mean, like, would make a difference. Um, but I do accept that more work needs to be done actually trying to figure out what this exact conversion rate should be. Um, but there's also a lot of kind of like theoretical work that goes into this assumption as well. Awesome. 
the next question. Um, considering some countries have cultural ties to therapy, seeing therapy as a negative thing, how would you treat people with a negative mindset towards psychotherapy? What if they prefer cash transfer for immediate care? Well, yeah, so uh, um, a big thing that, that may be related to this question is that, so for Strong Minds, uh, this charity, um, so this intervention isn't implemented on, on just like a random sample of the population who just happens to be very poor. Uh, people are pre-selected for like pre-existing like mental health conditions. So people are kind of addressed with Strong Minds when they already have like low levels of mental health. And so, okay, if someone like, already has like, low levels of mental health and they're really depressed, and they say, I don't want psychotherapy, uh, give me cash transfers, uh, that's, I mean, in that case, I would probably say, you know, if it was, if it was up to me, I would say, okay, sure, um, you know, take the, take the cash transfer. Um, but that's, I, I guess that's kind of like an idealized situation that, that I'm, I'm not sure we can, you know, um, get reality to reflect, because these are different interventions uh, implementing different things, and we don't have like some meta intervention that's like, which intervention do you want most? Let me give you that. Uh, maybe we should. I don't know. I haven't actually thought about that much. Cool. Um, in general, what changes to monitoring and evaluation in global health would HLI be most excited to see? Uh, yeah, so, so my answer for this will be brief and boring, and it would be we should monitor how the effects change through time. And so there's a couple different ways we can do this. We, one, we can just add more follow-ups to RCTs and follow people for longer and see how things uh, change after you know, they're affected by an intervention. And the other thing is I just want to know what happens to people's families. So these are just like the, the same points I made at the, like, the last slide about the gaps in the evidence. And so I would just like to see monitoring shift more to take into account uh, those two things that allow us to um, estimate the total effect of things we're trying to do to help people. All right, this, this next question uh, relates pretty closely. Um, what is the next study you'd like to see? What specific data would be most important to gather about household effects? And what prevents that study from being run, such as funding or something else? Okay, okay, so that's a, that's a three-part question. Um, so, so the first part is like, what's the study I would most like to see done? Um, so the, the study I would actually most likely like to be, see done is uh, a study that like rigorously probes for how people respond to subjective well-being scales, which is a bit you know, more related to subjective well-being and not global health and development. Um, other than that, uh, I mean, I'm pretty excited about uh, the deworming replication that I'm doing. Um, but another thing is just that a lot of these like, health interventions, uh, like deworming or like uh, anti-malarial like, treated bed nets, just are very scarce with subjective well-being data. So I'd just like to see, like, Adding subjective well-being is, is pretty cheap, um, especially if you're just adding like a couple like single item uh, like Likert scale questions. Um, and so I would just like to see more of that added to uh, RCTs uh, because it's pretty cheap and it's potentially incredibly informative. And um, I mean, how I would like to measure like household well-being is probably the most consistent thing to do is whatever like mental health or subjective well-being questionnaire people are using for uh, the individual to also just do that for the household, so so that you can be certain that like the differences aren't due to you know difference in questionnaire. 
Sweet. Uh, this next one is, is quick and simple. What charity should I donate to? Oh, oh goodness. Um, yeah, so I, I guess one thing I can see someone coming away with is be like, oh, okay, Strong Minds. Strong Minds is great. Um, so as, as, as a researcher, I'm, I'm a little bit more uh, modest and cautious about, being, about thinking that that's an immediate implication of this analysis. Um, in general, I just think we need to do a lot more work about subjective well-being. Uh, I, I think you know, strong minds and generally task-shifting psychotherapy seems promising. Um, but I, I think of my work as more as a signal that it looks like something's out there. It looks like there are things that even if strong minds isn't that promising, I, I think this indicates that there's going to be other mental health treatments that can potentially beat GiveWell's top recommended charities. And so uh, that, that, that's, that's kind of a non-answer, I understand, but I, that, that just kind of uh, reflects my, my, my caution about <laughs> being like, here's where you put your money. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I said quick and simple, but... Anyway. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, the next one. Uh, when discussing psychotherapy, could you expand on what type of therapy you are providing? Um, what values do these psychotherapy providers follow? Also, considering that many rely on community leaders, religious advisors, as psychotherapy equivalent, how do you locate where psychotherapy is neglected or more necessary? Um, so, so the first part, so the psychotherapy that we, uh, we think about most is, is Strong Minds looks at interpersonal therapy, and so that mostly means what that focuses on is trying to address the kind of the triggers of a depressive episode that come from problems with interpersonal relationships. And a lot of what goes into that is role-playing certain dynamics that are um, normally like sources of the issue and trying to figure out solutions. And that's part of why like the group setting uh, is more helpful for that. And so that's most of the psychotherapy that we think about here because otherwise there was a, there was a whole bunch of types that went into um, the, the general psychotherapeutic analysis. Um, and so how do we find uh, which places that like need psychotherapy? Um, I, I think we, so th there's not good data about mental health in low-income countries. So that's something that we could also just like have way more is just good data on, you know, what are actually the rates of depression, anxiety in low-income countries. And so instead of like seeing exactly where like therapy isn't being provided, I think more we would just use the general heuristic of, okay, there is, um, there's very high rates of depression in, you know, these places that are, you know, say recently like ravaged by war. Um, but uh, just there's like a very, there's like, you know, like a handful of like mental health professionals and most of them are going to be located in cities and not rural areas. And so you, you can see that pattern in many places across the world. And to me, that, that's just generally what indicates that there's a massive gap that needs to be filled um, or that, that could be promising to fill, I should say. Awesome. Thank you so much again for this. We, we are out of time. I know we have a lot more questions, but uh, you okay. may be able to come up and talk to Joel afterwards. Um, yeah. The next, chat, or the next uh, talk in 15 minutes will be a fireside chat with the president of the Humane League on effectively reducing suffering. Uh, can we please all give Joel a nice round of applause?